0: It's easy for me to get excited about where we're going because I don't think we need any convincing that families are in crisis uh, in America today. We're not getting the help in uh, establishing values in the home that we may have gotten back in the 50s. TV is not helping us. Movies aren't helping us uh, to even to a certain extent. We're not getting the help in the public sector that we used to be able to get. And so it's time for the church to say, what are we going to do in the light of this crisis? And and that's what we're trying to do here as as a church. We have been looking at the Gospel of Matthew. Today we come to the most significant passage, perhaps in the Bible, for a lot of folks. Uh, This is the peerless teaching of the peerless teacher, the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to go through this sermon a little bit more slowly than what is my custom. Uh, It's such a rich uh, passage. I want to make sure we don't miss uh, what's here. So turn your Bibles to page 958, Pew Bible. Uh, We're going to be looking at one beatitude today, Matthew chapter five and verse three, Matthew chapter five and verse three. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Father, we pray that you'll speak to us through your word this morning, enable us to see here what you would have us to see. And then, Father, I pray that because of what we have seen, that you will motivate us to be the kind of people that you want us to be. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. I recently read about a bicycle race in India where the object of the race was to go the shortest distance from the starting line. Uh, The only rules in the race were that you can't touch your foot on the ground once the race starts. And if your bike topples over, you're done. A gun would sound so the race would start and the racers would be off and they would inch forward ever so slowly. And then eventually a second gun would sound and uh, whoever was the farthest away from the starting line lost. And the individual that was the closest to the starting line won the race. As we come to the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount gives us rules for what it means to be a part of the kingdom of heaven. It begins, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The section of the Beatitudes, at least, Uh, ends as we skim down to verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What we see here is a principle of inclusion. What is it that uh, is the marks of the kingdom of heaven? Well, everything between verses 3 and 10. So we're getting characteristics that mark those who are truly part of the kingdom of heaven. Now, as a preacher, you come to... um, this sermon and you say you've got a winner by the tail. Um, If anybody knows anything about the Bible, they've at least heard Sermon on the Mount. And when you know that this is Jesus Christ's preeminent teaching, you think, well, how can I miss with this? This ought to be easy stuff to be able to proclaim. And then you look a little more closely at this sermon and it's upside down thinking. Uh, It's saying that uh, we're going to start the race and whoever is closest to the A starting line, when the second gun sounds, that's the winner. A lot of this stuff just doesn't make a lot of sense as we compare it to how we live our lives today. Eight times Jesus Christ says, blessed is the man, blessed is the man, blessed is the man. You say, well, that's okay," because we understand in Scripture that this phrase, blessed is the man, Really means being approved by God, and so far so good, that'll preach. If you look at the word blessed, sometimes it's translated as happy. Well, we're into happiness in America today. We take our happy pills, Uh, we go to happy hours, Uh, we like to sing our happy songs, and we can say, we ought to be able to market that. Uh, People in America are definitely interested in happiness, and so if I can give a series, The Secrets of Happiness, well, that ought to be something that 21st century America wants to hear is when we look at the rest of it, that's when we've got a problem. Happy are those who are poor in spirit. you got to be kidding me. Can, can you imagine Hillary Clinton or any other candidate uh, in the future campaigning on the poor in spirit ticket? Vote for me because I am poor in spirit. No, we would think they're nuts. You know, we, we're going to vote for a candidate who is an achiever and is going to achieve for us, a candidate who's going to promise us that those gas prices are going to go down, a candidate who's going to promise us economic prosperity for all, a candidate who's going to promise us peace on earth. We're going to sit down with those people in Iran and we're going to make sure that there isn't any kind of nuclear incident. That's the kind of candidate we want in office, not somebody who says, well, vote for me. I'm poor in spirit. Or can you imagine the brain trust at Winter Park looking at the Various individuals that we could draft for the Vikings. And you look down the list and you say, well, here's Chad Greenway. We want him on our team because the man is poor in spirit. You say, what are you nuts? We want a guy who's a maniac. We want a guy who's wild on the football field. We want somebody who's going to hurt people when he's out there tackling. We don't want somebody poor in spirit. This kind of thinking is upside down thinking. And yet as we look at this text... As the peerless teacher gave his message, he says to us eight times over, blessed is the man, blessed is the man. And he starts by saying, blessed is the man who is poor in spirit. Now, that begs an obvious question to me, maybe a bunch of questions. What in the world is Jesus talking about? And can it possibly be true? That there is some way to find foundational happiness if we are, whatever it means, to be poor in spirit. Now, as we start then, it seems to me we need to do some things by way of definition. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? And I'd like to start by saying what I'm pretty sure it doesn't mean to be poor in spirit, just to clarify what's going on here. I'm pretty sure that Jesus Christ is not saying by encouraging poverty in spirit, that he is asking for us to be poor emotionally or to be poor spiritually. He's not uh, saying to us that if you take the Minnesota Multiphasic personality test and it's uh, proven without a shadow of a doubt that you're psychotic. Good for you. That's what we're looking for. People who are poor psychologically and emotionally. That's, that's the deal. I'm pretty sure, too, that Jesus Christ in this passage is not saying that what he's looking for are people who have no self-confidence whatsoever. People who are spiritual wimps, people who like uh, Uriah Heep's and Dickens say, I'm an humble man. And by that meaning, I'm on to nothing. I can't accomplish anything. I'm just a no good. I'm pretty sure Jesus Christ is not saying that's what I'm looking for. That, those are marks of people in the kingdom of heaven. I can also say that as I look at this passage and particularly look at what Matthew says throughout this book, that he's not arguing that the kind of people that really have it made in the kingdom of God are those people who are poor financially. The psychologists have been studying what makes people happy for years. In a recent study, a 2002 study, a University of Illinois psychologist Ed Diener said this materialism is the toxic for happiness. Even rich materialists aren't as happy as those who care less about getting and spending. Uh, University of Michigan psychologist Christopher Peterson indicated, that, according to his studies, forgiveness is the trait most strongly linked to happiness. It's the queen of all virtues, Peterson said, and probably the hardest to come by. So we've got uh, at least psychological evidence to suggest that Ellen Alda is probably wrong. Um Alan Alda made this statement uh, some time ago. It isn't necessary to be rich and famous to be happy. It's only necessary to be rich. That may be the perspective of Hollywood, but that's not the perspective of God's word. But having said that, it's this passage is not saying blessed are those who live in the slums. Blessed are those who uh, spend all their time in the ghetto. Now, there's not a premium here on being poor financially. That's not what he's being talked about. Well, what is he talking about then? Well, there are two words that are translated as poor uh, in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, The first word that is translated poor is the Greek word penes, which has to do with just eking it out, living from day to day. Uh, You can almost see this in the word as being penny poor. Uh, It's just making enough to barely get by, and that's it. That's not the word that Jesus Christ uses here in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, the second word uh, that appears in the Gospel of Matthew uh, is the word "tokas." Uh, "Tokas" is a word to mean beggar poor. This describes the person who doesn't have enough to get by the day. Uh, this describes the person for whom every day is a rainy day, and they wouldn't make it through the day without begging. Uh, they can't earn enough. They can't do enough. Uh, they can't accomplish enough. The only way they're ever going to make it is if someone in their gratitude or in their humility or in their mercy uh, for what they've received gives something to this poor person. And that's the uh, that's the implication of this. So Jesus Christ here in this passage is saying there's something uh, virtuous about being beggar poor. And you say, well, what could that be? Many believe that the key verse in the Sermon on the Mount is found in Matthew chapter five and verse 20. Uh, if you skip over to that verse, I think we get some insight into what Jesus Christ is talking about in this passage of Scripture. He says in verse 20, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, by that, Jesus Christ hasn't got to be better than a Pharisee, which then begs the question, well, how good or how bad uh, were the Pharisees? Well, Jesus Christ himself tells us uh, what he thinks about Pharisees in that uh, wonderful little story he tells about the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke chapter 18. If you're familiar with the story, uh, both the Pharisee and the tax collector come into the temple and the Pharisee looks up toward heaven and he says, I'm so faithful that I'm not like this man, you know, this this tax collector over here. And in his assessment of the tax collector, he was right. Because that tax collector would have been like the mafia of the day. Uh, he was one who would have cheated people. Uh, he would have been one guilty of usury in that society. Uh, he would have been among the drugs of society. So from a human perspective, there was nothing wrong with that Pharisee looking at that tax collector and saying, I'm a better man than you. If anybody looked at the two and asked themselves the question, who's the better man? Everyone in that society would say, well, the Pharisee is the better man. No doubt about it. He's the better man. If the Pharisee were campaigning uh, for public office against the tax collector, we would be out campaigning for that Pharisee because the Pharisee was one who was righteous. Uh, he was one that was upright. He was one who had integrity. He was one that you could trust. We know religiously he would have prayed three times a day. He would have fasted twice a week. And when he gave each year, he didn't just give a tenth of what he made that year. He gave a tenth of his net worth every single year. He was a better man than the publican by anyone's judgment. If that uh, Pharisee came and asked uh, for your daughter's hand in marriage, you would be glad to have that Pharisee as your son-in-law because he was noble. He was upright. He was conscientious. And if your daughter dragged in that tax collector, you look at your daughter and say, what in the world are you thinking? I mean, this guy is obviously a louse. You can do better than that, can't you? So if we compare the Pharisee and the tax collector, honestly, well, the Pharisee's a better man. And some of us may get the notion as we look at that story that Jesus Christ tells that the fundamental problem of the Pharisee was conceit. Yeah, he was a better man, but he shouldn't have said that in a public place, you know, not stand in front of an audience to say, well, you got to be so pleased to have me as your teacher here today because I'm better than all of you. Now, it may be true, but you don't say that out loud because you got to be more modest than that. And we might think that that's a fundamental problem of this Pharisee. He was just conceited. He was full of himself. Now, maybe he had a right to be conceited, but you don't communicate your conceit in public places. Now, if you think that's the essential issue here, you're wrong. Now, I can say that because if you look at how Jesus Christ introduces the story of the publican and Pharisee in Luke chapter 18, Jesus says that the fundamental issue is there are people in society uh, whose righteousness rests in themselves, and they're wrong. The issue for that publican and Pharisee is that when you're standing in the temple of God and you're thinking that you're somebody before God in God's temple, you're wrong. Because the truth of the matter is that every one of us who stands before a holy God is beggar poor. Every one of us. No exception. And that Pharisee thought, well, because I'm a better man than the tax collector, that means something to God. And the truth of the matter is that meant nothing to God. It might mean a great deal here on earth. There might be friends around who will say, oh, you're a you know, cool guy and you know, I'd love to have you as my friend. But standing before God, it means not a thing. Now, the highest place on earth is Mount Everest. I'm told that the lowest place on earth is the Philippine Trench. Mount Everest is five miles above sea level. The Philippine Trench is five miles below sea level. Obviously, a distance of 10 miles. If we were able to drain the Philippine Trench and stand at the bottom of the thing and look up, you'd be looking up 10 miles. You'd say, wow, what an incredible distance between the bottom of this trench and the top of Mount Everest!" But if you were to look at the earth from the vantage point of the sun, the earth looks like a billiard ball. The difference between the Flipping Trench and Mount Everest is not seen from greater distances. And that's the point of what's going on in this passage. God can look at us no matter how good we are or how bad we are. And what he sees is a smooth billiard ball. We're all the same. And until we come to the point where we recognize I am beggar poor before a holy God, I can't come before him and say, well, at least I'm not like this tax collector. Or you can flip that around and you say, well, at least I'm not like this Pharisee. You know, I'm honest and I'm honest about my wickedness and I don't don't pretend to go to church and be some hypocrite in church. You know, you can you can do that sort of thing and be every bit as wrong. Now, the issue is you're not going to be in the kingdom of heaven. Until you recognize the starting place is to say, I am a beggar before almighty God. And I have nothing to my advantage that anybody else around me has. We are all beggars before a holy God. Because until you recognize that you're a beggar before God, you're going to have no need of God. And if you have no need for God, you're not going to come to God. And if you don't come to God, you're never going to be in the kingdom of heaven. So that's where Jesus Christ starts. Uh, If you're going to be in the kingdom of heaven, you need to know how desperate you are as a beggar before a holy God. And in recognizing that, that ought to create a hunger and thirst for righteousness in you, which is mentioned in these Beatitudes, and a longing for what God has for you. And what is it that he has for you? Well, the kingdom of heaven. Now, that leads us to uh, the next statement that I want to make or the next uh, set of conclusions I want to draw from this first Beatitude. You'll be blessed if you long for the kingdom of heaven. In the Beatitudes themselves, and we'll get into this as we go through this series, the Beatitude in verse six, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled Uh, is the middle of the beatitude statement, and it reflects the attitude Christ wants us to have. A hungering and a thirsting, a passion for what's right before God. And, of course, uh, inherent in that is a longing for the kingdom. If you're new to the study of the Gospel of Matthew, uh, you may not be aware of the fact that the kingdom of heaven is a central theological issue in the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew, more than any other gospel, helps us understand what the kingdom of heaven is. It's a unique focus of this book. Twenty-six times in the Gospel of Matthew, you will see the phrase, the kingdom of heaven. And so it certainly begs our trying to understand, what does the kingdom of heaven mean uh, within the Gospel of Matthew? Uh, first, First, by way of oversight, there are two essential truths as we talk about the kingdom of heaven in Matthew. First, the kingdom of heaven is at hand in Matthew. That it is something that you can enjoy right now. We'll get into the details of that uh, in in just a a bit. But within the Gospel of Matthew, you can enter the kingdom of heaven right now, today. And there's a sense in which the kingdom of heaven is yet future. It's uh, it's something that's eternal. So Mother Teresa, in the light of that, was able to make this statement. We all long for heaven where God is, but we have it in our power to be in heaven with him right now. To be happy with him at this very moment. That's an essential teaching that we see shot through uh, the gospel of Matthew. And then, of course, it's also a future reward. It is uh, it's the eternal heaven as we think about it. Now, looking at this more specifically, what is this present emphasis that Matthew talks about? And more specifically, what is this future kingdom of heaven all about? Now, before we touch on that, C.S. Lewis made a statement that is gripping to me at least. He said, aim at heaven and you get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you get neither. Now that's upside down thinking to a lot of people, but I think that's right on the mark for what Jesus Christ is teaching us here in the Gospel of Matthew and the Sermon on the Mount. Now to the specifics. For the present, if we're looking for the kingdom of heaven right now, what are we looking for? I think I've got the verses listed up there. First, we're looking for forgiveness. Do we have the verses? Yeah, there's all the verses. What I've done here, just in case some of you want to check me out, all 26 verses where we see the kingdom of heaven, you want to write these down. I've got included on these slides. So as you look at these essential uh, first statements in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, you'll find uh, in the preaching of John the Baptist, that John the Baptist went out and was preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins, and that is the means of entry into the kingdom. So what is he saying? Well, if you turn from your sins, experience forgiveness from your sins, well, that's having the kingdom of heaven in your life right now. And you can say, you know, for uh, this society that plays the blame shame game uh, where guilt uh, is something that we experience with a degree of regularity. Would it be foundational for happiness to know that you'd be freed of guilt, to know that uh, in the light of what the scriptures teach, you can be in that wide and spacious place. That's what forgiveness is. Well, obviously, that ought to make us happy. And Matthew is saying you can have that right now. It's part of the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew chapter 13 and verse 11 uh, in the parable section, uh, Matthew describes the kingdom of heaven or those in the kingdom of heaven as being those who can understand the mysteries of God. Now, as you look at the kingdom parables in Matthew 13, particularly as you look at the kingdom parables, one of the assertions that Matthew's going to make is that there's a lot of teaching that we have in the church that doesn't make any sense to the world. Do you think that's true today? Matthew says that there are going to be a lot of things that we say as Christians. Your relatives, your neighbors are going to look at you and say, what in the world are you talking about? Oh, in this uh, section in Matthew 13, 11, Matthew makes the assertion for those of us who are in the kingdom. There are mysteries that we now can understand. There's teaching that might not make sense to other folks that suddenly makes sense to us. And obviously, that's an advantage for us being in the kingdom of heaven right now. We can understand foundational truth that family and friends and others who don't know Christ don't get. And of course, hopefully we can be in a position to explain it to them. Third, uh, third thing we can say about the kingdom of heaven right now. I just said it's a little bit of heaven on Earth. Uh, and I'm getting this from uh, primarily Matthew, chapter 13, the kingdom parables. If you look at the kingdom parables in Matthew, chapter 13, uh, you find, among other things, that Jesus Christ in his teaching about the kingdom says the kingdom of heaven is like and He Continue to tell us what it was like. And one of those parables, he says, it's, you know, it's like a kingdom where there are wheat and tares. The tares represent those who don't really get it. Uh, obviously, the tares are what you want to weed out and throw away, and they're going to be burned up at the end of the age. And Jesus Christ is saying, right now in the kingdom of heaven, you've got both wheat and you've got tares. At the end of the age, the tares are going to be done away with. They're going to be burned up. They're going to be destroyed. So what is he saying? He's saying that in a certain sense, the kingdom of, the kingdom of heaven is happening right now. And one of the realities is that we might be in Christian circles and we may find that on occasion we're bumping into tears. People who want to be a part of whatever we're doing, but they're not getting it. Uh, people are somehow still confused. People who are charlatans who are saying, "Up, oh, I believe in Christ. I believe in Christianity. And then you listen to what they teach and you say, well, this isn't right. This isn't right. In fact, as you look at the Muslim world today, as they do their apologetics against Christianity, this is their primary argument against us. You Christians say that you don't even believe that the Bible is the, the authoritative, inspired Word of God. Just look at what those German liberal professors said in the 1800s. You, you don't even believe in the stuff that you call the Bible. Uh, you don't believe in the power of God through prayer. You don't believe in any kind of stuff. And they can point to Christians who will say that sort of thing. So Christianity is discredited by Muslim apologists because you look at what these tares in the church are saying. Uh, the point that Matthew is indicating, well, that's the way it's going to be in the kingdom of heaven right now, uh, and we need to be committed uh, to a wheat kind of theology and thinking. A rather climactic uh, section in Matthew is in Matthew sixteen nineteen. I'm suggesting for the present the implication of this is that in the kingdom of heaven today we should be able to experience power in prayer. Uh, this is uh, often called the uh, keys of the or the office of keys in confession. Uh, If you have a Lutheran or Catholic background, you would have been exposed to this in the Lutheran and Catholic Church Uh, in um, churches like ours. We don't always pay enough attention to this, in my opinion, as we should. But the essential teaching in Matthew chapter 16 is this. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever is bound in heaven will be bound on earth. Uh, The clear implication of that uh, is that God has given authority to his church. We say this in the church. The gates of hell will not be able to prevail against the church of Jesus Christ because today, right now, uh, in the kingdom of heaven, God has given power to the church of Jesus Christ. And we can ask ourselves, if we're in the kingdom, are we experiencing that power? Uh, Do we believe God uh, for evidence of power in our lives as we interact with people about us? As we come before God in prayer, do we really believe uh, that something is going to happen powerfully as we pray in faith, believing Maybe you heard the story about the minister who died and went to heaven. And right before him, the taxicab cab driver uh, died and went to heaven. And first, the uh, taxicab cab uh, driver dressed in sunglasses, a loud shirt, a leather jacket and jeans came to appear before St. Peter. And Peter said, Who are you that I may know whether to admit you in the kingdom of heaven? And the guy replied, I'm Joe Cohen, taxi driver of New York City. And St. Peter said, well, you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. Uh, And he smiled and he said, take the silver uh, robe and the golden staff and enter into the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Following him was the minister. And he said, who are you? And he said, I'm Joseph Snow, pastor of St. Mary's Church for the last 43 years. And St. Peter said, well, you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Take your wooden staff and your cotton robe and enter into the kingdom of heaven. And with that, the minister said, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. You just told that taxi driver that he can have a silk robe and a golden staff and he gets to enter the kingdom of heaven and you're going to give me cotton uh, robe and, and, a, and a, a, a wood staff? What's the deal? And St. Peter looked at him and he said, uh, up here, uh, we give our rewards in heaven by virtue of what you do on earth. And you see, while you preached, people slept. And while he drove, people prayed. (laughs) Certainly what Matthew is saying as he describes the kingdom of heaven right now uh, is that in the church of Jesus Christ, we should expect that as we pray, uh, we are going to see things happen in heaven and things happen on earth. Expect that, says uh, Matthew, if you're poor in spirit. And are receiving the kingdom, you should be able to understand that. Well, that's the present emphasis. What about the future? Uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, as we look at these kingdom of heaven phrases, there are occasions where Matthew uses the phrase "the kingdom of heaven," and clearly he's talking about eternity. He's talking about what we would understand uh, as as heaven. And just to prove I'm not making this up, these are the verses uh, that you can look up: uh, five, ten, and twenty, seven, two, one, eight, eleven, uh, where Matthew, in talking about the kingdom of heaven, seems to be talking about uh heaven itself, or in Matthew five, nineteen and eighteen one, in those places where he uses the phrase the kingdom of heaven, it would appear that Matthew is talking about our heavenly reward. Uh that as we live our lives here, it's faith in Christ that's the foundation for going to heaven. But based upon what we do once we know Christ, there's going to be a heavenly reward uh that we that we receive. Not everyone believes that. Hollywood great Catherine Hebron died on june 29th to two thousand three, at ninety six. She won four Academy Awards, but through her life, didn't spend too much time thinking about heaven. Uh, She had a 27 year uh, affair with actor Spencer uh, Tracy um, and they never were married and he never dissolved his own marriage. In a 1990 interview Hepburn told the Associated Press, I am I am what is known as gradually disintegrating. I don't fear the next world or anything. I don't fear hell. And I don't look forward to heaven. Sadly, there are a lot of uh, folks in our society today who say, I'm not longing for heaven. I'm not hungry and thirsting for uh, righteousness. Now, happily, she isn't the only spokesperson out of Hollywood. Candace Berggren uh, was interviewed by um, Meg Grant and asked to name her three wishes. And she responded by saying, what do you mean, aside from eternal life? Because that's the essential thing. So what are we going to do when we get to heaven? Now this comes from the Book of Revelation, so a little quick study out of Matthew. Now skip ahead to the Book of Revelation. What does Revelation tell us about what's going to happen in heaven? Well, in heaven we're going to worship. You say, What does that mean? Well, we're going to worship by applying uh, instruments. Harps are mentioned in Revelation five eight, fourteen two, fifteen two. Uh in the Book of Revelation, we're going to worship by singing. We're going to sing some new songs. We're going to sing some psalms. We're going to sing some praise songs. And so both services that we have here on Sunday morning will be represented in heaven. You may not like that, but that's the way it's going to be uh, in heaven. We're going to sing some doxologies in heaven. We're going to be hearing some music uh, in heaven. And we're going to be listening to the ultimate preacher, Jesus Christ himself. And so you're never going to have to go home after a sermon and say, oh, man, George was off today because it's Jesus who is going to be the preacher. Uh, Secondly, we're going to rule in heaven, according to Revelation 24. Uh, We're going to judge the angels. Some ask the question, are we going to be angels? The answer is no. Uh, We're not angels in heaven, but we're going to judge the angels. We're going to rule over cities in heaven. We're going to rule over creation in heaven. One of the questions I get asked, I I, uh, went to um, uh, middle school uh, this uh, last Wednesday night. It was asked the pastor night. And uh, boy, I wish you all could have been there It was one of the coolest things there. There had to be 10 to 15 to 20 hands up in the air for an hour. You know, these kids asking questions uh, about the Bible and they weren't stupid questions. I mean, these are theological questions. That's probably uh, the, the deepest questions I've ever had asked with any group. And one of the questions I was asked was, so, Pastor, are there going to be uh, animals in heaven? Well, in Isaiah chapter 66, uh, as well as in Peter, Uh, Peter and Isaiah both say there's going to be a renewed heaven and a renewed earth. And so what the old earth is is like is going to be renewed in heaven. So I can pretty categorically say, of course, there are going to be animals in heaven. If it's a renewed heaven and renewed earth, there's got to be animals uh, in heaven because this is a renewal uh, program. The only thing I know for sure is that Phoebe Jones dog isn't going to make it. (laughs) Phoebe is the dog from hell who tore up carpets and and destroyed walls and. I did a lot of other things, so I, I'm, I'm not expecting to see Phoebe in heaven. But your pet might make it. I, I don't know. Thirdly, we're going to rest in heaven. According to John 14:2, 2, um, it is a resting place. And in our rest, what is it that we might be doing? God has created us to be in his image. In the image of God, you say, what does God do? Well, God's a creator. Are we going to create in heaven? How could we not create in heaven if we've been created in the image of God, who is the creator? So I look at this, and to me, it's a no-brainer uh, that we're going to be painting in heaven. We're going to be doing sculpture in heaven. I came across this, uh, this uh, statement just this last week. It really touched me. I hope this uh, touches you, too. Pastor Jack uh, Hayford was telling this story. He said, it was a deeply sobering day when I came to Carl's room in the hospital knowing there were only a matter of hours to live for Carl. As we sat by the bedside, I said, Carl, how are you feeling? A man of deep faith and commitment to Jesus Christ and a very experienced and highly respected lighting director at CBS. He looked at me, his eyes missed it slightly and said, Pastor Jack, you know, when you're in my business, it's a combination of lights, the skill at blending things together in order to create special effects. That's what this job is about. This morning I woke up and in the quiet of my heart, Jesus spoke to me. He said, Carl, how would you like to direct a sunset? Wouldn't that be pretty cool? If we're going to be in God's image in heaven, we certainly will be. I believe we'll be writing music in heaven. We're going to be dancing in heaven. Johnny Erickson Tata has said the first thing that she's going to do when she gets to heaven is she's going to ask Jesus for a dance. We're going to play in heaven. I'm going to finally figure out how to play golf in heaven. I'm going to have a trillion years uh, to, uh, to do that. So I'm going to figure that game out uh, in heaven. We're going to relax at the beach, at the concert hall. We're going to explore the cosmos. If we're going to have a body like Jesus Christ, one of the things that's excited me, you look at the body of Jesus. I mean, he, his body is the first fruits of the resurrection, we're told in 1 Corinthians 15. So what did he do with his body? He walked through walls. I'm going to do that. What did Jesus do? Well, he flew places. You know, the ascension, he didn't need a spaceship or anything. He just psh, right up into heaven. So I'm assuming that if my body's like Jesus Christ, that's what First Corinthians tells him. I'm going to be flying all over the place in heaven. You know, okay, let's trip to Mars. Don't need a spaceship. It's okay. You know, you do a little, of course, I don't want to be a bewitched here, but, you know, you do a little deal with your nose and, you know, you're, you're, in, you're in Mars. And so anyway, that's all going to be pretty cool stuff. We're going to have relationships in heaven. And a lot of relationships we can talk about. Our relatives are going to be with us. I came across this statement this last week by Billy Graham's daughter, Gigi, quoted by John Maxwell. Uh, She said, the only thing that parents can take to heaven with them is their children. I thought about that, and I I had to ask myself, you know, as a parent, am I giving my kids a longing for heaven yet? And how about you? Are you teaching your kids to long for heaven, uh, to have an eternal perspective on life? We're going to have friends in heaven, all the friends that we've enjoyed here. They're going to be Christians from all ages in heaven. Um, Moses and Paul and Peter and Beethoven we can sit down and have conversations with and then fly to Mars with. And then Jesus Christ is going to be in heaven. What are those relationships going to be like according to the Bible? Well, read Revelation 21 and 22 and you'll find out they're going to be perfect. There's never going to be a misunderstanding. Never, ever... An unkind word that you're going to say or anyone else is going to say. Never an angry reaction. We're going to have new minds so there'll be no more second guessing. Why did I say that? Why did I do that? Why did they say that to me? There are going to be no more bad memories in heaven. No guilt. Nothing to haunt us. And you look at this and say, well, why wouldn't we be longing for heaven then? Why wouldn't we want to say with the Apostle Paul, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Because when I die, I get to go to be with Jesus in heaven. That's the attitude uh, that uh, I believe Matthew is suggesting we should have. So let me end with this heaven checklist. As I understand what Jesus is saying in this beatitude, how do we know if we've got it straight? Well, first thing, are you longing for heaven? If not, you're probably thinking too little about it. And I certainly have done that. I think I've told you about the time when I was uh, at uh, Concordia Senior College in Fort Wayne, Indiana. I just read the biblical doctrine of heaven by Wilbur M. Smith. uh, And the lightning flashed across the sky and the thunder shook the building. And I thought to myself, oh, no, Jesus Christ is returning right now. And and I knew I wasn't ready for it. So I went out and bought a, a number more books on heaven so I could get more excited about heaven because heaven was a mystery to me and fear of the unknown was something I was experiencing. So in the light of that, let me recommend Randy Elkhorn's new book on heaven. I've read several books on heaven. I think Randy Elkhorn's book is the best I've seen. I like it because it's so biblical. In the first part of the book, uh, he is giving you what the Scripture teaches on heaven. the last part of the book, he's dealing with common answers and questions about, about heaven. Even in the last part, he's very, uh, very biblical. Joni Erickson Tata has got a wonderful book on heaven that's more experiential why she feels good about longing for heaven, and you want to get some good feel-good stuff, I can highly recommend uh, that book. Billy Graham's got a wonderful book on heaven. Uh, the book by Wilbur M. Smith, The Biblical Doctrine of Heaven, is another uh, good book on heaven. Maybe like me, you need to do a little reading on heaven so you can get more excited about it. In the light of this passage, are you poor in spirit? Do you realize you're a beggar standing before Almighty God? And as a beggar standing before Almighty God, have you done what is essential, saying, Oh God... Have mercy on me, a sinner. Because until you say that before a holy God, doesn't matter how good you are, doesn't matter how good you are compared to the tax collectors or the mafia of our society, until you do that, you're never ever going to be a part of the kingdom of heaven. So you've got to start by saying, I know what it means to be beggar poor. I've done that. I've asked Jesus Christ into my life. I've asked him to forgive me. I've said, oh, forgive me, a sinner, Jesus. Are you hungering and thirsting for righteousness? Is there a longing uh, for what's eternal. And you possess the joy that's not dependent on circumstances. That's our society. Today. I'll be happy if you treat me right, if you don't give me grief, if, if, if the gas prices go down. I mean, all these things that we look at uh, that are, de- are dependent upon our happiness. Well, that's not the biblical perspective. Happiness is not rooted in circumstances. It's rooted in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And then finally, do you believe that if you're poor in spirit, as you pray, It's possible to bind things on earth and bind things in heaven. right now we should be experiencing power as residents of the kingdom of heaven today. Our gracious God and holy father, we thank you for the teaching of your son. Father, outside the church, this is going to sound like nonsense to family and friends. Uh, Certainly in the world today, we're not likely to go to the office tomorrow and find that our boss is going to have a placard on his desk saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. Nor are we likely to see, as we interact with people in the street or in our neighborhood or at school, uh, people who are saying, oh, I long to be poor in spirit. We're probably not even see that many people who are saying, I'm longing for heaven. Because in this existential day in which we live, we just live for the moment. It's all about the job and the money and the prestige. uh, The sorts of things from an eternal perspective that don't matter all that much. So God set our thinking straight. I pray that you'll give us a longing for righteousness a hunger and thirst for it. Help us to get a better understanding of heaven, what it is and what it means, even what the kingdom of heaven can mean to us today. And then, Father, may we enter into the joy that is ours in knowing you today as members in your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.